Support for this podcast is provided by the Florence County Museum, presenting legend Francis Marion in the PD. The exhibit explores how 19th century art depicting Marion and his militia contributed to the Swamp Fox's legend in early American independence. Now on exhibit, flocomuseum.org. From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and I'd like to welcome you to the first of a series of podcasts about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. I'll be joined today by my producer and co-host, Alfred Turner. And we're mighty glad to be here today talking with you about where have all the shrimp boats gone. Walter, tell us about our guest and why we have that topic. Captain Woody Collins, a real shrimp boat captain, has produced an incredible book about the 100 years of the shrimping industry in South Carolina. For many years, a mainstay of the low country economy, it's now seen better days. We'll have a great conversation with Captain Woody and appreciate him coming up to be with us. Indeed, and a word about this podcast. Many of our listeners are joining us today after listening to Walter Edgar's Journal on the radio for 23 years. This being our inaugural podcast, we want to just mention to you that we're still going to be doing the same insightful, fun conversations. But we have a chance now with the podcast format to expand the breadth of topics and guests we'll be able to feature on this show. Speaking of which... Walters introduced our guest, so let's get to the interview with Captain Woody Collins. Woody, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Before we went on the air, there was we had an interesting backstory. We talked about uh, folks thought you were a native of Beaufort, uh, but you weren't. But we found out how you got there, or at least your daddy did. Your daddy grew up in my hometown. Mobile, Alabama, yes. He um, joined the Marine Corps in 1937 from Mobile and wound up down at Paris Island in Beaufort County in 1937. And uh, because he was fighting in World War II, you grew up up north. Uh, Your mother went to her family. Right. My Russian grandfather and my Polish grandmother lived up north, and while Daddy was in the Pacific, um, that's where my mother had to stay. He returned in 44. We came down to Beaufort. We lived in Yamasee, South Carolina. There was no place for an enlisted man with a family to rent in Beaufort, and we lived in Yamasee until we finally got into town and been there ever since. All right, and um, I know you were born in 42, so in the late 50s, you started you started shrimping. You started sh- shrimping when you were a teenager, right? Yes, yes. And so why did you decide to do that? You grew up in Beaufort, but what? Well, there were some fishermen there, some of the earliest fishermen. They had a son, and they uh, they all had children, and um, they were my age. And I started going out with them when they went out on their father's boats as riders. We would just go on a Saturday or a weekend or whatever. And that's how a lot of us down in the low country got introduced to fishing. If if you were not born into a fishing family and you did fall into this fishing life, it was usually kind of like that, through association with fishermen. That's how I got introduced to it. 
Well, I know over 50 years, and you and you cover the many changes in the shrimping industry, uh, folks think it's always been here. And sure, I can tell you in the 18th century, everybody caught shrimp, but not commercially. The shrimping industry in South Carolina is going to be 100 years old in a short while, right? Yes. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of the trawler shrimping industry in South Carolina. And it started in Beaufort County. Yeah. And it it came up here from Florida, right? Absolutely. And that's where it all originated. It originated down in Florida and spread up the East Coast. Well, and of course, as part of an industry, shrimp were not only just caught, but packed and shipped, canned. An incredible industry grew up around Beaufort primarily. Yes. Well, you know, before ice, before they had ice and means they were canning shrimp. They were cooking them and canning them in actually in glass jars, and they shipped them all over the country and even to Russia and all. And as ice became available, they started shipping shrimp via rail up north, fresh shrimp. And that's how the industry grew. Well, let's talk about that, that question of ice, because back then, if you're working on a shrimp boat, you had to load huge blocks of ice, right? Yes, yes. And we're talking about really large, several hundred pounds? 300. 300, 300 pounds to the bar. In the hold of the ship, and you could only stay out as long as the ice held. That's right. That's right. About three days in these earlier days is about as long as you wanted to keep shrimp on the boat, because... Um, you still had to get back, and there was a time period involved in packing them out, getting them on a truck, and, and getting up to the northern markets. Well, you talk about in the early days when you were there, a large fleet operated out of Beaufort, uh, several dozen boats? Oh, more than that, Walter. They, they were mainly Portuguese and um, Sicilians and Italians that came in and started it down in Florida. And these same fishermen are the ones that moved up the coast into Beaufort. Beaufort probably had 40 or 50 boats in around the immediate area of Beaufort and Port Royal in the early days. They, they first came, one man came with five boats, 10 boats. And every time he went back to Fernandina and people knew what he had done, more boats came up. So pretty soon Beaufort was all overrun with shrimp boats. And, and one thing that was obvious is uh, from the very beginning, there were black shrimpers as well as white shrimpers. That was... Oh, absolutely. Some early things in the Buford Gazette in the newspaper there talked about the young man that worked on the boat with the foreigners. They, they would work as deckhands and all. And without a doubt, these were local black fishermen as well as young white boys. And then they also became the future fishermen in their own right. They became the captains and all of the future. Okay. And and you used the term captain, but you told me um, <laughs> anybody can be a captain, right? Absolutely. Um, le- le- legally, what are you on the boat? I am, the, I am the master of the vessel. The term captain used amongst shrimpers themselves and other people, it's a complimentary term. According to the United States Coast Guard, We are not captains. We are masters of the vessel, and we are charged with the responsible operation of that vessel. Now, as a shrimper in South Carolina, you have to have a captain's license, but that license you buy. And when I was shrimping, it was $5. And I I think I said in the book one time, (laughs) one day a shoe salesman, the next boat a shrimp, next day a shrimp boat captain. So, Walter, if you're down in Beaufort, Go by the DNR office and pick yourself up a shrimp boat captain's license. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let me ask you, when you you first started shrimping, how large was the crew on the boat? Oh, one person. 
One person. One person. The boats were quite small, quite Spartan. Wow. Yeah. Everything was Spartan about them. Everything was, was you know, there was no heat on the boats. There was uh, little means to cook, uh, little tiny bits of fresh water that you carried. The boats didn't have much horsepower. The nets were made out of cotton webbing, which was very thick compared to the days. And when it gets wet, it's very heavy, and um, it could rot and tear. Um, there were a lot of things different about it. No, Very little electronics to tell you where you were and what you were doing. And there was... A- a fair amount of danger involved, right? Always has been from then till today. And let's, t- let's talk about that for a minute because people don't think about when they get that nice shrimp cocktail, <laughs> what what went into putting that shrimp on the table. Yeah. Well, the boats in the earliest days as well as today, they had a lot of equipment on them to make them operate. As the boats got larger and they used more big heavy iron on the boats with the mast and the outriggers and the chains and all the gear and all, the danger became worse. And um, there was a high loss of life on shrimp boats. It was considered one of the most dangerous occupations in the United States at one time. Wow. The, the danger was usually human error. It was usually human error. Even though it was very dangerous work, it was human error, lack of proper maintenance of equipment, something rusting through that wasn't caught and breaking and falling. So it was it was very dangerous, very dangerous. You still you still are going out? Well, no. I retired about twelve years ago. Um not too long ago I went out with a, a friend on a shrimp boat. He had just gotten a shrimp boat. And I go in the river a lot. I pick oysters, I catch fish and I catch shrimp, but it's in my small boat. Well, shrimp boats along the coast whether it's here or down in Biolabatry, south of Mobile, where I grew up. Very romantic shrimp boats. In fact, there was that great Rosemary Clooney song about shrimp boats are a-coming. There'll be party tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's assuming they're all coming back with with great catches. But a shrimper, certainly when you first started, was at the whim of the shrimp because he had that three-day ice supply and at the end of three days, he had to come back in no matter what. And he also had a question of how much fuel he could go with. Absolutely. And not every shrimper, even the best, they didn't all catch a lot of shrimp every day. The best guys over a longer period of time would do the best. But if you wanted to mention the newer boats, and if you let me veer off into that a second, the newer boats of the day, right now the shrimp boat has absolutely reached its zenith in its history. They have power steering on them. You can drive a 90-foot shrimp boat like you drive a brand-new Buick. They have central heat and air conditioning with a thermostat on the wall that you can select the temperature you want, regardless of how cold or, or how hot it is outside. The boats now are freezer boats. They freeze the shrimp as they come off the deck down below in the hold. They do not have to unload till they want to, and they can have they can stay out 30 days. They can work 30 days and keep the shrimp frozen. And also, um, they have washers and dryers on them. Personal personal staterooms is what the cabins for the captain's quarters is called. He has his personal stateroom, his dresser drawers in there, and the crew will have theirs. And each the captains and the crews all have their own personal showers and all. all right, so so how, how large are the crews on a boat like that? Two to five, according to the size of the boat. Okay. But something you said very interesting is they can stay out for 30 days, and given modern technology, 
that probably means that the captain, if he sees the price of shrimp maybe going up, he waits to come in so he can get the best price. So he's not subject to the whims of the shrimp like his predecessors that's, were. That's right, Walter. He, he, can, he can check the market up and down the coast. And let's say if he were fishing off of Charleston and McClellanville at 6 o'clock in the evening and felt like he wanted to go unload, he could check North Carolina, check Georgia, check Florida prices. He could be down off of St. Augustine the next day to unload, and a 10 cents difference in 30,000 pounds of shrimp would mean about $3,000. Okay. Well, and, and in talking about where they shrimp, everybody thinks, well, you see signs, local shrimp. Maybe yes, maybe no. The shrimper may be local, but a lot of South Carolina shrimpers, the shrimp are off of North Carolina now more than they are our coast, right? Well, no, not really, but there's a time when they, they catch them very well off of North Carolina and um, time when we catch them off of South Carolina. But but the biggest abuse is that is, is with the imported shrimp, which imported shrimp started in the 1950s. And the imported shrimp in the 1950s was all wild-caught shrimp by foreign fleets. Germans, Italians, whatever, shrimping elsewhere in the world and then shipping them over here. When the shrimps started being raised in ponds in the Middle East and Central America and all, that's what put a big damper on local shrimp. And oftentimes, they were brought into the shrimp flow and either knowingly or unknowingly, people bought and ate them and they were passed off as possibly as local shrimp when they weren't. And they were of a much inferior in quality. Well. Miss Neal and my wife and I are very careful where we buy our shrimp from, and I think I mentioned as a as a friend of ours who comes up from the coast. But one of the things that he has talked about was some of his shrimpers that he buys from have been going as far north as the Chesapeake on occasion. That was that was a phenomena that happened, and it went on for several years. And that side, by some quirk of nature. A lot of shrimp wound up into Chesapeake Bay, probably as the egg-laying shrimp that were mixed into biomass of plankton. They, the Chesapeake Bay is vast, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of shrimp there. They had no laws and no means to catch them. When the water cooled off and those shrimp started leaving the Chesapeake and heading south, when they got off of North Carolina, the North Carolina guys up there dragging for fish started catching some shrimp. And then they um, went and put some shrimp nets on, and a long story short, it was a phenomenon. And the boats from South Carolina, Georgia, anywhere that could get there, it was absolute record-breaking shrimping. And it, and it lasted a couple of three months, four months, maybe at the most, for two years. And now it's kind of over. It, that, that phenomenon hasn't happened again. Well, shrimping is regulated in South Carolina. Uh, by the Department of Natural Resources. And I guess most people don't realize that there are three different kinds of shrimp that we can get in South Carolina. You can get white shrimp, pink shrimp, and brown shrimp. I'll explain it to you briefly. The season starts off with the white shrimp. These are the ones that were left over from the previous year, and they hid up in the little in the areas and down in bottoms and mud in the spring. They grow very quickly. They lay the eggs. Now, these are the white shrimp. They lay the eggs for the shrimp that that will be caught in the fall. In between the spring shrimp and the fall shrimp, we have a summer shrimp called the brown shrimp. And you catch that usually starting in July, late June, July, into August, and then it it kind of peters out and you go back into your white shrimp. So really there's 
And there's, there's several other kinds of shrimp water that don't have a major impact, but you have the spotted hopper, which we can catch sometimes in the early spring. They get very large. And rock shrimp, which are like a little lobster, that you can catch offshore. Uh, and yeah, I got to ask a question here. Uh, just as a listener, I'm curious. We've been talking about shrimping right now, and that's a good thing. But I'm curious about some more of the history because, you know, the title of the book is Where Have All the Shrimp Boats Gone? And we'll get to that, right? Yeah. But it at one point, what you were saying, there were scads of boats in the Beaufort area, Port Royal, et cetera. Absolutely. Can we just go back a little bit from the time where you said suddenly scads of shrimp boats start coming to the South Carolina coast and just kind of follow that growth mm-hmm. on through? Because I know there have been highs and lows, right? Yeah. yeah. So when the when the first boats came here, these Portuguese guys, Sicilians and Italians that had developed this trawler industry down in Florida, when they first started down in Fernandina, they kind of caught all the easy low-hanging grapes, so to speak, the easy-to-catch shrimp. And they had to start moving to look for more shrimp. Well, they they moved north and south, but trying to go south from Fernandina, where it originated, the bottom was getting rocky, and they were tearing up their nets. So they were having much better luck heading north. And as they went north, then there were three things that you had to have to make a successful shrimping operation in these days. You had to have a rail line, you had to have an ice supply, and you had to have a, a dock and a fuel supply. From Fernandina, where it started, and they had a rail supply because they had the old Flagler Railroad there. Brunswick, Georgia had no rail supply. Midway, Georgia, uh, Darien, Georgia, none of those. The next place to have a rail supply and an ice supply was Savannah, Georgia. So this fledgling seafood industry moved up to Savannah, Georgia, and they were doing well everywhere in Savannah, in the 1930s, they were canning 50,000 pounds of shrimp a day, canning them to send out. And, and from Savannah, it went on into South Carolina. And that's another whole little story about how the, the Georgia shrimpers were coming into South Carolina, catching the shrimp, taking them back to Georgia to be processed. Now, this was cutting South Carolina out of a natural resource. So... The Board of Fisheries, which was formed in 1906 in Buford, in Buford itself, um, they went down to Fernandina, Florida, and they got one of the early Portuguese fishermen down there. His name was Charlie Vecchio. And they asked him if he would come up to Buford, to South Carolina, and catch shrimp. He said, we know we've got shrimp. We've got a dock for you. We've got ice, and we've got a rail supply. So he came up here in 1924, and he brought... 10 or 12 boats with him. There's different accounts about how many. Every one of his boats were named after his wife, Jessie. She was 24 years his junior. The Jesse 1, the Jesse 2, the Jesse 3, the Jesse 4, Jesse 5, the Jesse 6, Jesse 7, right on. Every time, and they only came here and fished too much. We use the term fishing and shrimping interchangeably. A shrimper may say, I'm fishing tomorrow, which means I'm shrimping. So anyhow, when... He only stayed here two months out of the year, and he only got to fish a, a little bit of that time, but did really, really well. Every time he, he went back to Florida after that two months was up, and the, these guys found out what he did, well, they came up with him, and they followed him. So pretty soon, Port Royal, the sleepy little town of Port Royal, was covered with shrimp boats. There were five different 
fleets of shrimp boat as well as some individuals that came up out of a fleet. Port Royal was filled with shrimp boats and the overflow next went on into Beaufort. The backside of Beaufort, behind Bay Street, they have a beautiful waterfront park now where everything from the river was dredged up and filled up and grass planted and trees. All that was shrimp docks. And that was how the shrimping developed there. Charleston didn't get shrimp boats at all until seven years after shrimping had been going on in Beaufort. Beaufort was. 80% of all the shrimp were caught in Beaufort County in the very earliest days. So anyhow, the first guy to shrimp in Beaufort, there was no railroad line right downtown. In Port Royal, the rail line went right by the fish house door. Two men could actually take the shrimp and put them right on the rail car from the dock. Wasn't the case in Beaufort. That's why shrimping didn't start in Beaufort. It started in Port Royal. The railroad connection was, was crucial. Right. It, absolutely necessary in these earliest days. There was no trucking. No, no, no trucking like we know it today or even in the 50s. So the first guy to shrimp in Beaufort, he carried the shrimp in the barrels to the rail depot in an ox cart, which is about a mile and a half to two miles. So it wasn't until trucking developed that shrimping could be spread out from around these areas that had access to a rail line. And once the same man that carried the shrimp in an ox cart to the rail depot in Beaufort is also the first man to carry shrimp out of Beaufort County with a truck. He carried them north to the northern markets. And once that happened, shrimping could go on anywhere because you could get the shrimp from the dock. And it spread out onto the islands of Beaufort. It spread out to places like McClellanville, Watermalaw Island. Charleston probably already had the facility, but they didn't get into it until seven years after Buford did in 1924. So you talk about in your youth, there would be 50 boats in Buford. So where have they all gone now? How many shrimp boats do they have coming out of Buford today? We'll back up just a minute. So in, in 1980, now shrimping from those 1924 days right up, it had a steady growth period except during the war. And if you want to hear about that, we can do that. But anyhow, it had a steady growth period. In 1980, shrimping peaked out in South Carolina. There were over 1,500 shrimp boats licensed to trawl for shrimp in Beaufort County. Now, all these boats didn't tie up in Beaufort County, but they were licensed to trawl for shrimp there. From 1980 on, every five years, it cut itself in half. So here you are, 1980, you've got 1,500 boats, and most of them were shrimping in Beaufort County. 1985, you had 750. 1990, you had 325. 1995, you had 100 and right on down. Now, the book took me six years to write. The last year of the book, I canvassed every shrimp dock in the state of any importance. I might have missed some, but all the, all the things that actually had boats at them. And there were less than three dozen shrimp boats left in Buford County in that, in that period of time. Now, here's something that we talked about a little earlier, is in all this goings-on with shrimp and shrimping and, and technology and advancement and better catchability per boats and more horsepower and everything, the shrimp never cared about what was going on. <laughs> they didn't care if the price of fuel was high or if it was low. They didn't care if the Japanese or the, or the Hondurans imported shrimp and drove the price. They didn't care about anything, and that's the case today. The shrimp 
are still doing what they've always done. Some people think that with that many boats that possibly the shrimp were fished out, but shrimp are like mosquitoes. If the conditions are right, you will have them coming out of your ears. It takes very few shrimp left over from one season to produce an ample crop and even a bumper crop the next shrimp shrimp season. They're incredibly prolific and like a half a million eggs for one shrimp is what she lays and she could lay several batches a year. So um, the shrimp don't care. There's a lot of shrimp around. The shrimping has definitely changed over the years. You, you talk about shrimp boats and shrimpers are aging out. Yeah. In, in your conclusion, it's kind of melancholy. Well, there's not many boats left. Um, it's It has built up a little tiny bit from that First uh, survey I more or less took at the end of the six years. Mm -hmm. There's been a few boats. Charleston, Shim Creek, which was packed with 70 big, nice boats, was down to two when I finished that book. Now they've got about five. Mm. Um, I don't think we'll ever see it like it was. I think we will see a fair amount of local shrimp. What I miss most is the fresh local shrimp, not the freezer shrimp. The freezing changes it. It changes that shrimp totally, unfortunately. There's nothing like a fresh shrimp. Oh, I, hey, I grew up on the Gulf Coast. There you go. Absolutely. Friend. I know. And, I out know. Of, and out of all the shrimp-producing states, South Carolina produces the, the least amount of shrimp. What went on here went on all the way to Texas, Alabama. And my, my, like I told you, my daddy's brother was the vice president of Bender Shipbuilding in Mobile. Oh. Um, they built a lot of nice shrimp boats. Well, and shrimp boats today are metal, are they not? Oh, absolutely. And in the past, they were wood. Yes, there's there's some wooden ones left. It's it it's more more so now. They're big and they're steel. Well, I hate to say this, but Walter, <laughs> I have to give you the the wrap up sign. Well, Alfred, I'm unhappy about that, but we. <laughs> well, I'm sitting here twirling my fingers as fast as I can. Oh, Lord. All right. So, Woody, any last words for our listeners today before we sign off? Well, I can tell you this. The book is almost sold out. I'm not printing anymore. If you can find some and you want to read about this industry, it's a, it's a, a really interesting and colorful history. There's some, a lot of great stories in there about the men that lived the life. Well, and we've just had one of them here on the show. Captain Woody Collins, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. Walter, it was my pleasure. Thank both of y'all very much. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Captain Woody Collins' Where Have All the Shrimp Boats Gone is a remarkable history of an industry that for almost a century was a mainstay of the low country economy. Sadly, in the 21st century, the shrimping industry has seen better days. But it was great to have Captain Woody Collins on the show to talk about the growth, development, and history of shrimpers along the South Carolina coast. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. As always, we want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month. 
and are available at southcarolinapublicradio.org, as well as on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. <music>